you know, I, I went from living by Lake Zurich to spending the next year and a half living in my parents' spare bedroom in Lewisham. Back in Lewisham. Back in Lewisham on no income, right? Mad. Building this product, building this business. Um, and, you know, if you fast forward from where we were, where we started as three co-founders, me building the technology, doing maybe four loans in our first year to where we are now, five years later, Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand Me Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Azechi Britton, who is the founding member and principal investor at Impact X. As you will remember, I interviewed Eric Collins, who was the CEO and founder of Impact X Capital, which is a VC fund focused on investing in diverse founders. Azechi had a super interesting story, starting off as an investment banking technologist to then co-founding Neighbor, which is one of the UK's most well-funded fintech startups they've raised over 200 million pounds from the likes of the uk police force pension fund to goldman sachs and a number of other high profile top tier investment banks on this episode we cover a lot of ground talking about Azechi's early career working at lehman brothers as an investment technologist which was quite interesting for him watching the whole financial collapse and the demise of lehman brothers to building the technology while still working full-time at Credit Suisse before eventually transitioning out of a full-time role and going full-time on Neighbor. Super great episode, loads of insights, loads of honest truths about Hazechi. Um, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. No worries. So when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? Well, I usually say, hi, my name's Ezechi Britton, but everyone calls me Ez. So you automatically give them your name? Yeah, always do. It just makes life easier. Give them your name and you take it back. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you got to own that. That's that's the whole point, all right? Because yeah. it's funny, growing up in the UK, I got called so many different things. Ezechi, Ezechi, Ezeki, Ezekai. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then it just got shortened over time down to, to Ez. Okay, and then next I guess what follows is so what do you do is actually? Yeah, so that's that's a brilliant question. And up until now I've really had a hard time answering that one because well what is it that I do? Because I do so many different things. But now I introduce myself as um a uh principal and founding and CTO, sorry. I introduced myself <laughs> yeah. as principal and CTO in residence for Impact X Capital, which is a hundred million pound venture capital fund investing in underrepresented entrepreneurs. Yes, and we had your colleague yep. on the podcast last week. Absolutely. Eric. The illustrious Eric Collins. The illustrious Eric Collins, yes. But I definitely wanted to get you on because I think obviously you two have very different backgrounds. Yep. Uh, so I thought it was very, very useful. It, I thought it would be very useful, rather, to have you on the show. So before we get into Impact X and all the great work that you guys are doing and going to do, talk to me about like early career, because as you said, you're the CTO, so obviously you're 
an engineer mm-hmm. by trade, I guess. Yep. Uh, you know, you're a founder, you're a serial entrepreneur, you definitely downplayed your intro, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> well, I knew you were going to ask yeah, some no, questions. Yeah, no, so I'm going to get into it. Le- leave it, it for you there. Yeah, so talk to me about early career. So you're from London originally, correct? That's right. So I grew up in Lewisham, South East London. Oof. Lewisham, I know, South tough London. area. Before it got gentrified. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Before the coffee shops and the cheese shops. Yeah, there were no coffee shops back then. Maybe the occasional bakery. Wow. <laughs> that yeah. was it. And what was that like growing up? It was all right, man. Lewisham was a cool area. Lots lots going on, really, but I didn't really go out that much. I didn't party that much. Um, I think it's more what I remember in my youth is more the schools that I went to. So I went to, I, I won't name it, but the school I went to was not a, not a great school. Um, it was in the southeast of London as well, in the Lewisham borough. Um, but you know, this was a school that got a five A to C pass rate of fourteen percent. Wow, one four, yeah, exactly. So you can imagine, uh, didn't have the greatest uh, experience at GCSE level for various reasons, and I was keen to get out of that school as soon as I could. So uh, as soon as I had the opportunity, I talked my way into um, an A level college because I'll be perfectly honest, I hadn't quite achieved the GCSE grades I wanted to because at the time. I was smart, but I didn't have the uh, the learning habit mm. because at the school that I went to, learning wasn't wasn't interesting, wasn't cool, wasn't it, it wasn't what you did. And I guess the teachers weren't pressing you as well. The, to be fair, I don't want to be harsh on the teachers. The teachers did what they could within the environment they were in, but you know, this was a school where there were kids in my classroom, and I t- and I'm absolutely honest with you who when asked what do they want to do when they grow up, the answer was, I want to be on the dole, right? <laughs> that, that's the kind of school I went to. We have an American listenership, so can explain to them what is the dole? So the dole is welfare. So at the school I went to, some of these kids' greatest aspiration in life was to be on welfare. Wow, that's, <laughs> <Right>? that <is> <laughs> that's the school I went to. And you wonder why they had a 14 five A to C GCSE pass rate. And I think that was like the highest it'd been for about 10 years. So yeah, it was an awful school. I did not enjoy it, didn't want to be there. And as soon as it was over, I was happy to get out. But I wanted to to succeed. My parents had instilled into me the value of education from an early day. Both my parents were teachers. My dad actually ended up being a Lewisham counselor for over 20 years. So I had a strong desire to succeed, just not necessarily the peer group within mm. which to do it. Um, but That's important as well. It is. It, it really iron is. Iron sharpens iron, as they say. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, your, your world is only as wide as the people who inhabit it, right? Mm. Your vocab is only as strong as the words that you know. Yeah. And if, you're, you're, if your horizons are so small and so narrow, it's very difficult to see beyond that. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know that, that's a lesson I learned over and over and over as I went through my career. But after leaving that school, I then went to a sixth form college and I thought I'd learned my lessons, but I hadn't. And by that point, you know, I did a maths, physics and a computer science A-levels, but unfortunately I, I messed them up. I failed. I spent more time playing video games and training karate. Than, <laughs> you know, I'd trained martial arts since I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. um, but I spent more time doing that than I did studying. And uh, I ended up failing my A-levels. And then um, I still remember uh, being up in my bedroom over that summer. I can't remember when was, when was it. It must have been uh, 1996. Um, no, 1998 it would have been. 
and um, my dad coming up to to see what was on because I hadn't been downstairs for ages. Mm. He's like, "Look, you've just been hanging around in your room all week. What's going on?" I said, "Well, you know, I failed my A levels." And I remember my dad looking at me, and I'm sat there thinking, you know, my dad's a teacher. Yeah, trust. You know, he, he's, <laughs> he's not going to be happy about this. He just turned and said to me, look, what are you going to do about it? And that was it. Those are the only words he said. And I often joke that I wish I could say that I got off my bed, put on my Superman cape, ran downstairs, mm. cracked on with my levels. Didn't quite work out that way. But I did realize, look, I need to do something about this. It's no longer enough of, I can't keep using the school I went to as an excuse for not applying myself. Yeah. Such a waste of talent, yeah. failing my A-levels when I know I can do more than that. I just uh, realized, look, I really need to do something about this. I need to make some effort, I need to make some headway, and I need to think about what's coming next. So I went back to my college, talked my way back into my A-levels, convinced my, my physics teacher, who was one of the toughest teachers in the school, to let me back in and that um, he, the thing is, is that he knew I was capable. Mm. He knew I was smart. And he had said to me the year before, your problem is you're too smart, but you're lazy, right? And- uh, yeah, you, don't, you, don't, <laughs> you don't just pick physics and maths no, for fun. No, exactly. You, know, you don't do that if exactly. you, you know you, you can do it. Exactly, <laughs> so he knew I could. So, um, but he wanted to see in me that I was going to do the work. Right. And, um, you know, we talked and talked and talked. And in the end, he was like, look, fine, do it. But I want to see you apply yourself. And I did. And I did okay. I didn't do amazing. Um, but I, I did enough to, get to, the next to get to the next step. And I realized at that point, I really, really need to figure out a way to deal with my poor track record now. Mm. Right? Because in the world of work, especially at the early stages, it's all about proven track record. Right? And... I knew I didn't have a good one. So I'd initially wanted to go to Manchester University. That wasn't going to happen. Um, I then started looking at, well, I want to do a year in industry. So an industrial placement year right. as part of my computer science degree. So I wanted to do computing because um, actually what I wanted to do was get into video game design, mm. uh, video game programming, and eventually set up my own video game studio. That was that was the vision. When I was a teenager, it was either get into pro video game programming or become a vet. <laughs> those, those, so those were my two choices. Wait, what? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I wanted to be a vet because I just I had, I had a real thing. For, I loved animals, man. I had, I had cats since I grew up, and I loved animals. Um, and I had a choice. I was like, what do I do? So I decided to do a work experience placement at a vet, and hated it. This was before uni. <laughs> this was this was before. This was while I was still at school. Okay, cool. And hated it. And at that point, I realized no, computers are the way forward. Yeah, of course. And I'd had a love for video games ever since. Um, playing Double Dragon in uh, Saxon, uh, Saxon Crown, Ladywell Baths. And at that time, I remember my parents were, were worried about letting me play them because it was very much a case of, well, you know, it's addictive, it's this, it's that. And I always joke my dad, you know, you didn't want me to get into, comp into programming, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank God I didn't listen to you. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. Sometimes you've got to do what you feel is right for you, right? Yeah. Always listen to your parents. They're, they're a fountain of knowledge, right? And you'll miss it when it's not there. But because ultimately only you can live with your life decisions. 100%. Yeah, you impact other people, but it's you who has to live with it, right? 100%. So you've got to back yourself. You know, these are all things that you pick up over time. Um, so then you finish 
this so you redo your a levels yeah you're doing this pet internship or part-time job you you're like this is dead and then uh you eventually go to university right yeah so i, I selected the university of kent at canterbury at the end because it was a university that was well renowned for computer science and it had a year in industry and at that point i really kicked into high gear really applied myself and was doing really well and um, in your third year you have to pick um, you have to find yourself uh, an industrial placement for a whole year mm -hmm. because my thinking was well it should be a lot easier for me to get that as part of my computer science degree and by that point I'll have a year's worth of experience and that will override my proven track record right. now I was right to do this but I didn't realize how right I was at the time that university was a Sun campus so it was a, a Java campus Sun partner uh, it was known for computer science. By the end of the year, I was one of three who still didn't have a placement. Wow. I'd failed to get into Microsoft, IBM, Sun, Core Design, um, I think IDOS at the time, all sorts of organization companies I'd applied for, just no one was interested. Why? Because of my, my A-levels and my GCSEs. So I'd made the right decision, but I still hadn't gotten over exactly. that hump. Yeah. And then out of the blue, I got a phone call at uh, Lehman Brothers and saying, look, we'd like you to come Even in. Brothers, the, investment bank. the investment bank. saying, we'd like you to come in for, you know, we got your application, we'd like you to come in for an interview. And I remember thinking, who the hell are Lehman Brothers? <laughs> when when did I apply? Uh, what the hell is a Lehman Brothers? What, what is Lehman Brothers? <laughs> what is an investment bank? And when did I apply for this? Yeah. And I remember going to my placement coordinator and she just said to me, look, yeah, you did. I remember you doing it. You should absolutely go for it. So, you know, I'm a kid from Lewisham. I didn't know anything about investment banking. Uh, the closest I've been to a bank was Barclays, and, you know, <laughs> trying to withdraw some money, which I didn't have very much at the time. Um, and uh, so I spent that whole weekend just learning everything I could about what an investment bank is. And this was before Wikipedia and, and the rest of it. So you had to really uh, hunt. I was searching on their website. I was downloading reports. I was finding broken links. I was doing all this stuff, trying to figure out what is an investment bank. And I went in for the interview. Oh man, that was an experience. It was in um, when Lehman used to be at Broadgate Circle. And again, remember I'm this kid from South East London, didn't have a clue about the corporate world. And I remember turning up to this interview thinking I looked really smart and I had this black shirt on, silver tie. Oh. <laughs> that was the only black tie I had. Tie. That was the only shirt I had. That was the only Looking tie like I had. Some yardie, yeah. tie <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. For this for this interview at an investment bank, thinking I look at all the people must have been going, Who is this kid walking across? Oh my goodness. But you know, I had and I walk into my, my interview and it's with uh, three men. Um, who it turns out were all the uh, senior management team of the uh, prime brokerage team, te technology team that I eventually joined. And I had this interview with them. But what was amazing was, whilst I was one of the final three um, in, my, in my year to get a placement, it was right before the exam. So that's how close to the wire it was. Oh, wow. I mean, this was right towards the exam period. Yeah. But I've been actually applying myself. So I knew more about my course than I did at any other point in the year. Mm. So I smashed through this interview. Right. And at the end, they, they asked, do you have any questions? And I was asking them about their share position. I was telling them about broken links on their website. I was yeah. talking to them about oh, all this stuff. It, I was properly giving it, to, giving it to them. And then, you know, I remember I finished the interview. I went home. I got a phone call that evening saying, hi, you know, this is Yasmin. How, how did you feel the interview went? And I said, well, you know, I, was, I thought it was really good. Thank you. I really enjoyed meeting the team. 
She said, fantastic. Um, well, we'd like to offer you the role. I was like, oh, wow, amazing. And then she drops a bombshell on me. Don't wear that shirt again. Well, there was that. <laughs> I think I'd already learned that lesson. But then she went, yeah, so that'll be uh, 500 pounds a week. Uh, so that's about 26,000 pounds a year. And bear in mind, I was a kid from Lewisham who oh, nice. my best paid job had been like six pounds an hour. My parents were teachers and all of a sudden I'm being told as an undergrad, I'm gonna be paid 26K. I, I, she asked me, do you need any time to think about it? I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I can come in now. I'll start right now. Do you want me to start? Wow. She was like, uh, thank you very much. And then um, I ended up um, doing my year at Lehman, which was just an amazing time, the prime brokerage technology team. And that then set me up for the next stage, which is, well, you know, they expected me to come back and join the grad scheme. And yeah. I'm like, no. You didn't want to <laughs> so, go? I said, oh, I did. But I said, I do want to join as a grad, but not yet. And I said, well, what are you going to do? So I'm going to go traveling. I did a year um, traveling. Where'd you go? Well, I spent three, four months doing a season in Whistler, uh, learning to become a snowboarding instructor. Um, I then spent some time in Thailand learning how to scuba dive. And ah, Lushan to, spent, to skiing, right? Yeah, exactly. You got, you got bougie on there real well, quick. <laughs> well, the thing, you know what? I still remember. I still remember. I wanted to go straight back into work immediately. Yeah. Once I start, when I started at Lehman, and. I remember talking to a bunch of people who were doing this traveling thing mm. and going skiing and doing all this stuff. I'm like, I've never been skiing or snowboarding before. And I went and I thought, this is amazing. You know, why, why have I, you know, I've always wanted to try, but I never had the money, Yeah. right? My parents were teachers. I, we didn't have, we had nothing. I still remember my dad got his, um, my dad had a job as a salesman at one point. My dad's the kind of person who go in to sell a lawnmower and end up, buying a car right <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah you can't sell like anything one of my sisters, she's yeah. such a sucker as well she absolutely just, she's like oh whenever people tell to me i just buy yeah no, <laughs> so my dad can't sell and both my parents struggled to find jobs right yeah. because um my my mum was nigerian they my dad had spent time as a teacher in nigeria my mum was a qualified teacher from nigeria but actually, uh, they really struggled to find work when, when uh, we moved back. So I was born in the UK, then went back to Nigeria for a couple of years, then came back to the UK and was in the UK from about age two, three onwards, um, and then moved to Southeast London. Well, moved to Southeast London, uh, the Downham area, and then the Lewisham area when I was about four. Right. And uh, my parents really struggled to find work. Um, the, the, the government wouldn't accept my mum's teaching qualifications, so she spent the next few years working as a cleaner. Um, whilst retraining um, to become a teacher. This was whilst obviously having a young child and me, and then she had my sister, and then eventually my brother as well. And it took my dad a few years before he was able to start teaching. So, you know, all the stuff I'm doing now, I look back on when I grew up and we had nothing, mm. right? You know, we lived in the council house, yeah. um, which my parents were able to buy eventually. Um, but no, we had very little. Um, so when I had these opportunities, these opportunities meant a lot. I know it comes across bougie now, but these things were huge for mm, me, absolutely yeah. huge. Um, so, you know, when I heard all this stuff about traveling and snowboarding, I thought I've got to give this a go. But ultimately, actually what it was, was my boss at the time at Lehman, uh, I asked him, you know, do you have any regrets? And he goes, yeah, one actually, there's one thing I'd love to do, which is travel down the Amazon River um, and spend you know, a few months out in South America. I asked him, well, why don't you? He goes, well, you know, I've got, I've got a job, I've got a career, I've got a family, who I love, but these are things I wish I could have done. And if I had the opportunity, I would. At that point, I realized, you know what, 
I don't want to live a life full of regrets, mm. right? Um, if these are things that are important, I want to go and do them. Yeah. And I still remember, man, trying to explain to my mum that I was not going to get a job immediately and I was going to go traveling. She was like, why don't you want to get a job? Well, why don't you want to work? I had uncles calling me up from Nigeria, <laughs> right? Going, wow. Eze, what is this nonsense about you not working? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to work. Why do you not want to work? And I, <laughs> I like, honestly, I'm not joking. So we were five years, five years, years. up until the crash. You know, we were the team that priced the first CDO squared in Europe. So I was well aware of a lot of the stuff that went on. So you're part of the problem, huh? Hey, man, (laughs) look. Because we know how that went down, right? (laughs) All I'm going to say is, all I'm going to say is the systems that we built were telling people what was going on. We're giving people the right numbers. You've been programmed. They told you to say that. Hey, look, you know what? (laughs) If traders want to ignore the numbers, that's entirely up to them. Was there until the the crisis happened. Spent a year with Lehman and PwC and administration helping wind down the business uh, from a technology perspective. And during that time, actually tried to build my first um, startup idea, which was around protein shake vending machines. Um, didn't really get off the ground. First time attempt at doing something, middle of the credit crunch. Uh, but we had, you know, the likes of Maxi Muscle speaking to us to produce powders. Uh, Fitness First was talking to us about distribution. Wow. Um, we had a company called Duranth MC talking to us about potentially building machine. But trying to launch a company like that cost about 400K. And there was just. Just because of the technology. Technology, design. building out the prototypes, Hardware. everything. It was just not going to yeah. happen. Um, so and this was around what 2009 around 2009 so this is after the crash people are probably risk averse to invest massively, or take, massively. give out a loan exactly. for this milkshake yeah exactly no, <laughs> that's no probably what one, they called it milkshake no I mean I know it's a protein shake exactly. but I didn't even know anything about raising capital there was no information yeah. about how oh, to do yeah, these back things then, back absolutely. then right um, you didn't have all the YC podcasts and all this Start kind of stuff downs. going on now. yeah exactly so I want to do something else My I had an agent at the time as a, as a consultant uh, as a con- as a potential contractor, come reach out to me and say, "Look, I know you, you're interested in contracting. Would you be interested in going to Switzerland?" And at the time, I thought to myself, "You know what? Hadn't really considered Switzerland. I yeah. mean, no one really in the UK did at that time. Zurich was not the kind of place you went to if you worked in technology." Mm. Um, but I thought, "Well, you know what? Let's give it a shot." Um, so I took a gamble, went out to um, Zurich, had the interview, and ended up getting a role as um, a contractor in an equity derivatives risk and pricing technology team with Credit Suisse. Yeah, and I spent and the then, next five years out there. And at this point, you completely like threw the milk, the protein. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that, was that, that, that that was done. Did that even? How far did that go? By the way, did you actually make anything? No, no, nothing was. It was made. just like a business. Plan. It was just yeah, a plan spreadsheet conversations few designs few thoughts designs some pretty we'd actually gotten pretty far with one of the manufacturers in how would we get this machine together yeah. um which as i said maxi muscle had gone as far as saying look if you do this we're happy to provide custom hoppers for your product so that you can fit it into your machines um fitness first originally was saying yeah we'd be happy to distribute they then started to backpedal on that um, but really it was about getting the cash and we just didn't have that yeah. capacity so it didn't happen. So yeah, I gave up on that. But that but was like your first taste of it. It was like my first taste, first exactly. And you're like, 
Yeah, I'm going back to the bank. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, you know what, I need, you need to make money. You need to make some money. So, um, and I always felt that contracting was the first step to independence mm. as a developer, right? Because one of the things people go, people ask me about is, you know, how, how should I start up my company? What should my first steps be? Should I jack it all in and, and be a startup? And my, my advice is always, if you've got a stream of cash flow, that is a really bad idea, right? Cash is king. Cash is absolutely vital. If you've got a way to keep bringing cash in and you've got the capacity to build something on the side, do it on the side, right? Develop the idea, develop the concept. All the best people I know are climbing multiple mountains, right? Mm. Everyone needs to hustle that little bit harder. It's absolutely fine. But at the point where the two things cannot coincide anymore, you can't do them together, and you're at a breaking point, that's the point when you need to really think, okay, now do I jack it all in? And that's the stage where you've got to think, well, how much runway do I have? How far developed is my concept? Am I able to raise any money? Am I potentially able to build a team? And um, I think where we were, it was definitely a case where it was time to end that journey and yeah. take a step over. When we initially met a year or so ago, and you were mm. telling me the story, you were at Credit Suisse. Yeah. But you were moonlighting on Neighbor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so you're doing, yeah. So it's not setting your soul on fire, basically. It's no. like you're making good money, you're on Switzerland. Yeah. You know. Um, but there's always been that thing in me that I've wanted to do. Mm. my own thing wanted to create something and I think fundamentally as a technologist in a bank you can make really good money you can have a fantastic career but you're never going to be in charge you're always on the service side yeah, of things yeah, and that's what I just didn't like that I if I was going to be on the service side of things I'd rather run my own business providing that service right. than be providing that service within someone else's business I just always struggled with this the challenge of the technology team versus the business. And I really disliked that. Um, and I'd, so I always had this idea that I wanted to do something. And actually, before I started working on Neighbor, myself and some members of my team had started working on a concept around, um, it, it's not the sexiest title in the world, but auto-escalating online notifications for banking systems. Um, and you know, we, we were starting, and this was based on some things I'd done whilst I was at Lehman Brothers. And it was a really great little concept. Didn't really get anywhere because, you know, I realized at that time that one of the key lessons in Switzerland is don't try and build a product with tech guys in the winter because <laughs> they're all off snowboarding, yeah. right? And so that, that just didn't really get anywhere. But I learned a lot about um, trying to build something uh, commercial on the web for the first time mm. using open source technologies and all sorts of things because whilst the banking environments and you know we had fantastic opportunities to build interesting stuff within the bank you're always within that safe space yeah. of the of the corporate intranet and things like security um, just don't become a concern also things like UX UI are just not at the forefront of your mind you're purely focused on functionality mm. function over fashion exactly right? absolutely so having to do that forced us to, or forced me to start thinking a little bit differently about new things. And it was shortly after that started to, to not really go anywhere that my uh, co-founder at Neighbor contacted me about this idea mm. um, about building this peer-to-peer -peer lending platform, which is where we were at the beginning. Yeah, so yeah, that makes for a good segue into this area. Mm -hmm.
So who came up with the idea for Neighbour? And for those who don't know what Neighbour initially was, because right. there's a pivot somewhere. Yeah, there was, absolutely. Um, what was the initial concept and how did you guys get started? Yeah, so to be clear, um, it was my co-founder, Martin, who came to me with the idea. Um, and I remember, actually, it's quite funny because he, he came to me with this concept of building this wild peer-to-peer financing platform whilst I was still working on this other idea. And I'm like, Martin, I haven't got time for this right now. <laughs> <laughs> and what you're trying to create is just crazy and there's too much of it. And there's only the two of us and we're not ready for that. He was like, okay. And, and he went away and to his credit, he spent the next six months thinking about it some more. And then came back to me and was like, no, he's nothing if not uh, tenacious. So it is, okay, thought about what you said. I've scaled it back a little bit, cut it back a little bit. What do you think about this? And at that point, the idea was um, very much to be um, a peer-to-peer lending, lend, borrowing and savings platform for employee communities. Huh. So the whole idea was, you know, what we would see when we were out, and both of us come from Nigeria and have Nigerian backgrounds. He's fully Nigerian, I'm half Nigerian. You have this idea of susu, um, where of collective savings. Yeah, right? so it's like the, the old woman in the village, 100%. She, she looks after all the money, yeah. put all the money into the pot, and then every month someone, someone gets a little off. bit out of it but you can't like once you've taken that money you can't be like oh i'm not in this anymore exactly you're, you're in it for you're life. in it for life it's like a it's an honor system absolutely and my mum had exactly the same thing as part of the women, nigerian women's group she was a part of yeah and these these things help people in so many different oh, ways man, right because so it was very informal it's an, it's an informal credit union yes is what it was yes. right and what we'd both seen uh, martin in particular during our times in the investment banking world. So me and Martin both knew each other from our time at Lehman Brothers and then he'd moved off to Goldman Sachs and a couple of other places. And what we were seeing was wealthy traders lending to each other because they, they'd run out of money, they'd spent it or whatever, but they knew how much each other was getting paid, they knew mm. when they were getting paid, so they were happy to take that risk. So in essence, they were doing a form of underwritten salary-based lending and we thought, why can't we bring these ideas together and why can't we digitize that concept? Mm. So initially what we were looking to do was a peer-to-peer system whereby we would lend money to employees on the behalf of other employees and that we would then create that um, holistic um, circle, well, that, that real nice circle of borrowing and savings within, a, within an employee community. Right. And it would be very simple because we'd be able to know exactly how much people were getting paid, we'd know their notice period, so we'd be able to create simple deduction files and this, that, and the other, um, and build a very simple system around it. And at the time, that seemed very, very doable, it seemed like a great idea, so I thought to myself, yeah, well, let's do it. And I'd learned so much just trying to build this previous startup concept yeah. that I thought, okay, I think I've, I, can, I can give this a crack. So I came on board as co-founder and CTO. We um, then brought on Monica Kalia, as um, our, our third co-founder and um, chief strategy officer. But uh, I started coding the, pl- the platform whilst I was still working at Credit Suisse in my spare time yeah. um, in Zurich. This was part of the reason why I wanted to become a contractor. Right? So you can have the flexibility. Have the flexibility, have um, the rights as well. Your employment rights are yeah, very different when true. you're a contractor especially versus... In bank, in banking. Exactly, especially compared to when you're a perm. And obviously you earn more. So you can start to build a bit of a war chest and have some cash in the bank so that if you want to go and do something, you can. And that was absolutely critical for me. So I initially coded the system, the initial platform that we built. And then eventually, 
realize that you know I can't do this all myself. I can't build a complete peer-to-peer platform right. for lending on my own yeah. whilst doing a full-time, a full-time role. Job, yeah. uh, it just doesn't work. So I, I ended up using, and this is why I say having a cash flow is so important. I started using um, a lot of the money I was earning from my time at Credit Suisse to pay a couple of offshore developers in India to help me along. And that was almost like our first team Smart. as we started building this. And, uh, what so, platform did you use to? Um, .NET. I was, I was a .NET developer at the time. So we were using .NET and Microsoft Azure. So I initially was building it to be a, a fully cloud-first platform. This yeah. was back in 2013. So I was building the first platform. I, I laid down the first lines of code in July 2013, before, way before we established, because we officially started, I think it was January 2014. Mm. Um, and then we actually spent probably the next six months building that out um, and went live with um, our sixth, uh, Martin's Sixth Form College as our first client base wow. and with the idea of lending to the teachers as a proof of concept to see if we could prove it and prove the idea. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating as a VC now when I talk about traction and growth and metrics that we're looking for. Um, but then I have to temper that with my experience as an entrepreneur because for that first year when we launched, we probably did maybe four loans. We probably lent out about £10,000 in total. Yeah. <laughs> that was it, that was nothing. Yeah, but right? that's great, but that's a lot if you think about it, from like zero to 10000 from a part-time job. Exactly. Basically working on this thing on well, the side. While still doing it. So what we've done was it's proven that in our and spare time. how much time, that cost you guys? Um, I'd say over the course of the year, I probably spent somewhere in the, in the realm of £40,000 on okay. development, right? Maybe a bit more, yeah. Because you know, over the whole year, Are you over those six your hours months, as well, and your time. No, no, it wasn't okay. including my time. Over those six months, I'd say probably close to about twenty, right? It's and probably what Martin put money in. Yeah, so both of us put money in. I was right. primarily paying for the development. Martin was looking at legal costs and the rest of it. The business stuff. Yeah, exactly. So we we very much had quite clear delineations of role. Mine was very strongly focused on technology. Um, and then, yeah, I think the key thing is that for us, it, it just proved that we could build a product, mm-hmm. we could launch it, and we could sell that product. Whilst the revenues and the, the, were, were nothing to, to write home about, we'd proven those basic concepts. And that actually gave us the confidence to end up speaking to Police Mutual. So Police Mutual, for those who don't know, is a um, financial service company that sells uh, financial products to the police force. And interestingly, to be a serving board member, I believe you also have to have been a serving police officer. Mm. So it's by the police, for the police. But they didn't have a credit product at the time and they were very interested in some form of consumer loan, which they could provide to their officers so that they could use the fixed income, well, the interest of um, the loans to provide part of the fixed income proportion of their ISA products. So in essence, what they were looking at was our, our whole borrow and save idea and saying, look, how can we bring this all together. So they wanted to kind of like white label your tech? Yeah, in essence, that was the idea initially. Um, that then morphed. But this was really what started that whole pivot. Mm. Right? Um, so um, over the course of the year, I think our, we had our first pitch with them, and I still remember, it was around January 2014. Um, I'm still in Zurich at the time. Martin calls me up and says, like, Ez, Ez. I need you to, this was like on a Saturday night. <laughs> I need you to come over to London on Monday. I'm like, why? Well, we, we, we got a pitch to um, Police Mutual in Litchfield. 
I'm thinking to myself, who are Police Mutual and where's Litchfield? <laughs> and, and how did you get it? <laughs> yeah, where did this come from? Um, so we had to spend that whole weekend putting the pitch deck together and really working on it. And it was a horrible pitch deck, right? Horrible. Um, and I'll be honest, they said no to us after that first pitch. But what they liked about us was the, 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 the thinking behind it, the idea and also the flexibility, the fact that we're willing to work with them yeah. and allow them to help us shape the product. Yeah. And that really got their buy-in. And we then spent the next six to eight months talking to them about this idea, going back and forth, subsequent pitches, refining, refining, refining. You're still in your full-time job? No, I'm still in my full-time job. Although I'd started to downsize, downsize my hours. Okay. And this was, again, another great advantage of being a contractor. Right. And I was able to go from being full-time to three days a week. Yeah. And I spent three, so I'd literally be spending three days in Zurich and then the whole, the two days in the weekend in London and I'll be flying back and forth. That's fun though. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a slung, but that's the bit, like, I love that part that of the whole journey. In, yeah, like, exactly. It's, it's like proper, I want to do this. I'm giving it 110%. I'm going to work 1500 hours a week. I don't care. Yeah. And I don't, recommend that to everybody <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not gonna for a short period of time yeah for a short period of time it's fine yeah. right um, it certainly shouldn't be seen as the way to scale your business of right but there's always that period of time when you do anything yeah for the first time or at early stages where you've got to put a lot of time and effort into yeah. it and bear in mind I was as you said I was full time as well well by this point I was part-time but I was working in Switzerland and building this at the yeah, same time crazy and then uh, by around June 2014, we got the go-ahead from Police Mutual that they wanted to run a pilot with us um, at that point. It was really, and this is when I talk about make or break moments. Mm. This was the time when I was like, right, it no longer works to be doing this part-time. Right. And that was the time when I made the decision that, and that was a real tough decision, um, that I would uh, move back to the UK. And we then spent the next, you know, I, I went from living by Lake Zurich to spending the next year and a half living in my parents' spare bedroom in Lewisham. Back in Lewisham. Back in Lewisham on no income, right? Mad. Building this product, building this business. Um, and, you know, if you fast forward from where we were, where we started as three co-founders, me building the technology, doing maybe four loans in our first year to where we are now, five years later, We've um, got over 80 employees. Yes, yeah, insane. Um, we've partnered with over 300 companies and we've lent out over 170 million pounds. And you you raised? Somewhere in the region of 200. Yeah, with so, the likes of Goldman Sachs. With some major players in there as well. Bankers. Yeah, you skipped a lot there. I skipped a lot. Yeah. I'm sure you'll bring <laughs> but, uh, me back. Yeah. I'm sure you'll bring yeah, me back to a few, few points. Back, though. So, Police Mutual are like, we're in. Mm. So do you guys decide to go and raise money at this point? And like, how did you raise your first amount of capital? I get asked the question a lot um, from early stage or early, early career programmers who are super smart yeah. saying, should I quit everything and just build my first startup? Because obviously everyone's hearing about all the new startups that yeah, come about. Everyone's right heard now. about, you know, the founders of Snapchat, Airbnb, Facebook, etc., etc. right? All, you know, college dropouts, Bill Gates, oh, and everything. everyone wants to do that. But we couldn't have built Neighbor if it wasn't for the network and the skills and the experiences that we'd established over mm. collectively between myself, Martin, Monica, 20 to 30 years of investment banking experience, yeah. right? So you ask where did our initial money came from? A lot of it was friends and family, right? And I'd say about two to 300K was probably brought in 
from either our own personal cash flows from our time working in the banking space mm -hmm. or through friends or through family members. And that was how we just bootstrapped the business really. Initially it was us, then it was friends and family. And our first real round was uh, from a family office. Hmm. Um, and again, that was through network. Yeah. So because family officers, they don't want anyone to know who they no, are. No, absolutely. <laughs> they're like LPs. They're just low key. Absolutely. And I think this is something that a lot of founders really underestimate is how important network is. And you know, we'll get onto it later. But that's why ImpactX exists, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we've created our own networks, and we want to be able to open those doorways for people yeah. who traditionally have been unable to gain access to capital because of it. You know, we were able to do what we had done because of our time and experience in the industry. Not everyone who's got a great idea has that ability to do that or the time or the opportunity. Mm. Um, so for us, it, it was an interesting journey to raising. And we didn't raise any from uh, any VCs or anyone for some time, actually. It was primarily through high net wealth and family offices initially because, again, it was all about working the networks that mm. we were doing a year and a year and a half in. And in order to, to launch formally with them, they insisted we get an audit done. And that audit wasn't just any audit, it was an audit by KPMG. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, <laughs> so they're not gonna, that, cause that's public sector money. Exactly. You're, you're with right now. So, they wanna... 100%, so we were a, a year and a half startup getting a full audit from wow. KPMG, that's crazy. right? So that was one hell of a baptism of fire into that space. I remember, we potentially had a large investor come in early days who was really interested in the UK and investing in companies here. And they wanted a data room. We didn't even have one. Well, what's a data room? So we had to then go and figure it out. And we lost out on that investment. Wow. Um, but uh, You live and you learn. You live and you learn. And I think that's that's a key thing for me is, you know, you, you've got to be prepared to take those chances. And I've taken some big bets on myself and big risks, but I've always backed myself to achieve it. And I, I do that because not because I know everything, yeah. not because um, I believe I'm, I'm blessed or I'm lucky, but because I have faith in my own ability to learn, mm. right? And through learning to overcome and to avoid the mistakes that I've made. And it's only through, that that, through doing that that you can really grow. And it's that growth that I always focus on. I always say, I don't want to spend the next five years doing what I spent the last five years doing. Yeah. That's good. I, yeah, you should put it on a T-shirt. I, I should, right? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I, and it's really interesting that my career has actually followed that. My first five years, I was a full-time developer at Lehman. My second five years, I was a contractor for Credit Suisse in Switzerland. My next five years, I was a CTO and co-founder for Neighbor. Now I've moved on and I'm, I've set up another organization, which we'll talk about in a moment, and I'm founding member, principal, and CTO in residence for Impact X Capital. So I've now moved into the VC space. So from developer to co-founder and CTO to venture capital. So you do your life in five year sprints. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm really interested to see what the next, what five, the next years, five years is. No, it, that's good. It is, right? No, I think, so So like you said, with Neighbor, right? Because I, I just want to delve into a bit more kind of like the, the startup learnings mm, from that whole absolutely. five year sprint. Yeah, and that's so critical, right? It's, it's key. very critical. So you went from part-time job, mm -hmm. hustling on the side, moonlighting mm -hmm. to yep. 80 people, 200 millions raised, hundreds of million dollars like given out in terms of loans. So the product works, right? Mm. It was a pivot from the initial idea. Yeah, which we didn't really talk about. Because yeah. the original idea was peer-to-peer, uh, peer-to-peer -peer lending. But because of the um, introduction of Police Mutual, they basically said, look, we want to be able to lend that money, right? Yeah. Because it's important to our model of taking that return and uh, putting it back into 
our um, uh, ISA product. Yes. So in essence, we then had to pivot from being a peer-to-peer platform to being a institutional lender. And so, that's and that's um you know that's a big pivot, right? And that just shows. Pivot. As a startup, you need to be adaptable. Absolutely, hundred percent. And actually, we're I'm I'm so glad we did it because, as you've seen, a lot of the peer-to-peer companies are struggling now. Yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, I don't want to make any call-outs, but you know, they there have been real problems in yeah. that space. Plus, the regulatory regime, the FCA has never been a hundred percent comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there will be more more regulations coming into that space. So I mean, you see a lot of kind of peer-to-peer platforms, especially in like the real estate space. Mm. Or property space. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, like Lend Invest or Company yeah. Link and all these guys. They initially started off as peer-to-peer as well, and then they pivoted. Well, that's the other thing. Almost every organization that started off as peer-to-peer has had to go to the institutions for scale-up capital. Yeah. Almost all of them, right? So for us, it was just, look, this Police Mutual doesn't want us to do the peer-to-peer piece. They want us to be institutional. Trying to do both at the same time is an absolute nightmare yeah. and actually breaches a lot of the rules around what peer-to-peer is from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, you so you like can't do it. Exactly. Then the regulators aren't happy about it. So you know what? Let's just let's go all in on yeah. this. And again, that's another thing. You have to go. When you make that decision, you've got to go all in, right? Yeah. Test the waters. Test the waters. And then make a decision, right? And then go for it. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you learn from that mistake and you move forward. You know, one of our greatest strengths as people is the ability to have hindsight. And it always seems like, oh, you know, in hindsight, that was a great idea. But it's that hindsight that teaches you what you did wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's only from making those mistakes that you grow and you move forwards. So yeah, so got to give it a try. Give it a try. So how are you guys kind of scaling? So, you know, one customer, did that kind of snowball into everybody kind of reaching out to you guys? Because like you said, you have 300 organizations using right. your technology right now. Yeah, yeah. How were you guys scaling? How were people hearing about you? And what were some of the challenges that you guys faced as you were scaling? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important that I do stress that for the last year or so, I've been a non-executive director for Neighbor and an ambassador. So I haven't been operational in the organization right, for you. And I say this because um, I don't want to take credit for what people have done in the last year. The, the team have done an amazing job, right? Um, I've been there, been supporting, um, but for the last year I've been involved in in other areas. But I'm still very much an ambassador for the company. Um, but those early days, what you've, you particularly alluded to, for the first year or so, we were just focused on Police Mutual, mm. right? Single client, single product. Um, and that had its advantages and its disadvantages. There were other mistakes. We were we were completely in stealth mode for a couple of years. Wow. Right, completely. Our first 30 people, I always joke about this, we hired without telling them what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. What? Seriously, because we were so nervous about some of the other big players out there potentially stealing our idea that we just didn't want to tell anyone about what we were doing. And this is a huge mistake. And I always tell people, secrecy is overrated, right? Yeah. Get out there, talk about yourselves, talk about what you're doing. Um, so, wait, I want to know, what did they apply to then? Well, and we would always <laughs> tell them. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And what did you tell them to do on day one? Well, here's the thing, right? I think to get involved in a startup at day one, you've got to be a little bit crazy Probably anyway. Bit, yeah. So these are telling people, not having people who join you simply because they believe in you is probably one of the biggest endorsements you can have, right? 
And I think um, what we sold to people was us. And we sold the team, we sold um, the concept. We'd only tell them we were working in an innovative way in financial services technology, and it was a lending product. We didn't tell them anything else, right? And that was enough. You know, we, we would interview these people, and I just think they really bought into us as people, as a team, you know, as a diverse founding team with different approaches, different ideas. And yeah, for the, at least the first 30 people, we didn't, we didn't tell them what we did, right? So it was very much stealth. And like I said, for the first year or so, we were f completely focused on Police Mutual, um, which had its ups, had its downs. It allowed us to be laser focused on single product, but then it can be very painful moving away from mm. that one product line, one client to becoming a client-based organization, right. right? That works with multiple partners. Not only just, it's not just sales, it's onboarding, it's partnership um, uh, relationship management. Yeah. Um, we weren't a white label platform, we were a multi-tenanted platform, but you've now got to ensure that your architecture can cope with that and can, can scale with that as well. And then you've got all the um, due diligence, so you get different clients and different organizations wanting to do with you. So your organization suddenly has to grow quite significantly mm. because when you're in that narrow strip, that narrow vertical, you can fool yourself into thinking, well, this is all we need, mm. right? We've done this great. Okay, we can just add on, we can just add new clients. But no, you have to build an entirely different organization to deal with that. Yeah. And again, that's an area where people really underestimate. And I think one of the other things we really believed very strongly at the beginning was uh, from a marketing perspective, well, you've got a capture channel. We don't need to worry about marketing. And I see this mistake all the time in startups who say, well, you know what? We're going to scale up through viral marketing. <laughs> like, good luck love, with that. I love that. Good luck with what that. They say, oh, right. we're going to make a video. Yeah, we're going to make a video. We're going to do some Facebook really ads, a little videos. bit of Instagram. We're going to talk to a few influencers. Um, and, you know, we're going to go viral and people are just going to buy us. And, I, and no, how about your business development team? How about your sales strategy? Yeah. How about your marketing strategy? Uh, how much yeah, actually spend email marketing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have a free on LinkedIn, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so it was that was a really interesting challenge. We had to really learn on the job. Yeah. And you know, we made a lot of missteps, right? some technical uh, maybe some product-based challenges or maybe just yeah you know, teething problems or growth problems right well we almost had to we we made a decision quite early on which was to in essence build an entire new platform um, to onboard all our new clients right um, for various reasons we built the original technology because AI was a developer mm -hmm. right didn't really know much about offshoring, outsourcing, or uh, buying platforms, or any any of that jazz. It's funny, I speak to CTOs now, and I say there's so much more you need to know than just being a programmer. Yeah. Um, you know, like, how, how do you deal with procurement? Well, you know, what, what do you have to look for in a contract? Um, these are all skills that are absolutely critical, but you're just not aware of it at the yeah. time. And no, we built the original technology because it was a peer-to-peer -peer platform. You couldn't just go out and buy a peer-to-peer -peer platform in 2013. But when we decided to pivot away from that, 
Um, and we were looking at, right, we need to build out collections, we need to build out all these other pieces, we want to look at multiple scorecards, et cetera, et cetera. We started to think, well, are we just building commodity here now? Because we're no longer peer-to-peer. We don't need a lot of that specialized functionality and we need to bring on certain functionality as well. So we made a decision fairly early on to actually transition away from that and into building, well, into taking on a new platform, which we then made the mistake of heavily customizing, Mm. right? Do not do this. (laughs) Don't buy platforms and then customize the hell out of them because you're just making the same same mistake. Um, But I'd say, yeah, the challenge was in, trying to the the standard problem of trying to have a legacy system and a new system and trying to onboard new clients onto your new platform whilst maintaining client a client on the old platform keeping them happy and that that was a real challenge but i'd say honestly the biggest the biggest mistake was not going public right Mm. when we went public that really as in um as in coming out of stealth mode not not ipoing um, yeah, <laughs> just to be clear. But uh, when we came out of stealth mode, that really lit a fire. And the reason why we did that ultimately was also because we had a key competitor come onto the landscape who started talking about how you know they're doing it first because they were the first to talk about it. I, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. <laughs> but be- because they were the first to really start talking about it. Well, yeah. But we'd been doing it for the last couple of years. Mm. <laughs> right? But we hadn't told anybody. Hadn't told anyone, yeah. And all of a sudden, we were in a race just to establish our legitimacy, even which was ridiculous, even though we'd been first That's to do crazy, it. Yeah. So you've got to get out there and own your own story. Otherwise, mm. someone else will do it for you. And But by doing that, a sense of urgency really grew. And every the, you know everyone became hungry to really get this thing going. And all of a sudden, it became apparent, look, we do need to launch other clients, which I think was something we were reluctant to do at the beginning. We knew we wanted to, we knew we needed to, but there was always that sense we've got to focus on Police Mutual because mm. they're our anchor. And the problem is, is when one client is responsible for 100% of your revenue, done. that becomes a real problem. Yeah. And it's a scary move to move away from it. But I, I, I really strongly believe in having anchor clients because they help you grow and they help get you that initial traction, those metrics attract um, investors. But once you've got over that hump, you need to grow beyond them as quickly as possible. Because when one client dominates your revenue, they dominate all your decisions, Yeah. right? They basically have a board position. And, and that's no, not through their own fault, right? Naturally, um, what they're trying to do, they're trying to do what's best for them. But it's not necessarily what's best for you. Interestingly, they also became an anchor investor in your organization as well. Nice. So ironically for them, the best thing for us was to find other clients, yeah, but they just didn't really realize it at the story. time. Um, How did that come about? Did they get involved in like Series A or? Uh, they got, I'd say at seed level. Okay. They came in fairly early. I, I can't remember if it was seed or Series A, but yeah, they, they, they came in with a fairly significant investment. Um, and again, it was great. Great um, customer to invest, and that's another story for a whole nother day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it, it was just brilliant validation yeah, for course. what we were doing. Um, but I'd say, to be honest, the biggest mistake tends to be around people, right, and focus. I would say those are the key mistakes that startups make and that we made. When you say people, in terms of like just hiring the wrong people or kind of getting the right people in, but you're not using them right. I would say not letting go of people early enough, Mm. right? And it's really tough at the beginning because when you build a company and you're basically 10 people in a room just 
working, 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 like a family. Yeah. Even for the first 20, 30 people, you're still a family. Yeah, everyone's name still. Exactly. But then as you start to grow beyond that, challenges start to creep in, hierarchy starts to build, skill sets start to become more more focused, growth becomes more important. Conflict. Conflict starts to arise. And, um, you know, the challenges are different. And the people who are great at fighting fires might not be the people who are great at putting in and following process. Mm. And process is critical once you're trying to scale your organization up. Because you can't keep running, unless you've got a money-making cash machine like Google, right? You you need really strong processes as you grow. And it's just not the right organization for, for a lot of people. And we held on to some people for too long. Mm. And also, sometimes it can be hard to admit that you hired the wrong people. and you don't want to be a bad guy. You want to be nice. But sometimes you've got to let people go. And it's better to do it early than to do it late. Yeah. Right? Because they can become toxic. They can really damage the organization. Yeah. So I'd say those were some key mistakes. And on the focus piece, it's really easy to want to grab every low-hanging fruit that you see. And you end up trying to do everything. And before you know it, your, your company's just all over the place. All so. things to all people. Exactly. Uh, I think it's so important to be laser focused on what your key proposition is, your key value proposition is. Understand what that thing is, why people are buying you, and really dominate in that space. So you think you don't think it's a case of like saying yes to everyone, even no. though you know your burn rate is a hundred k a month. You're currently doing sixty k a month. Someone wants to give you forty k. <laughs> Or something but it's like we don't do that i guess like i mean so, this is probably the worst case scenario ever but in that situation it's kind of like do what you need to do right i think at the very beginning do what you need to do right because the irony is is the reason why police mutual wanted to work with us in the first place is because everyone else was saying we don't do that mm. right and it's only because we showed that level of flexibility that we got police mutual right but once you go down a certain um a certain pathway saying yes to everyone is just damaging to your organization you, yeah. you're unable to service anybody mm. so and the problem is is once you've got too much breadth in your offering you need people to be able to service that you need um all sorts of you have to spend time building out plans estimating work delivering on it supporting it um you've got recruitment channels that need to support all those different so your costs just escalate and actually you don't necessarily take any steps further forward so your, your business isn't actually doing any better it's just across a broader platform mm. which can be great but often more often than not actually you just need to cut a lot of that away and focus on really being good at what you do and driving in that channel and then acquiring more customers and once you got to a certain position certain level of dominance then yeah sure start to add more more strings to your more strings to your bow right um but yeah, You've really got to be really, I'd say at the beginning, it's all about focus. That's an absolute critical one. You know, I, 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 I totally agree. And so, you know, five year, your five year sprint at Neighbor, Yeah. you decided to transition out. Yeah, I did. Um, was that because, was that due to burnout or? So I'll be honest, there, there were a number of things. I'd say every, cus every company, particularly startups, have a company life cycle, right? Right. Um, and people are suited for different stages of that life cycle. And I think I'm particularly well suited to the startup phase, mm. right? The taking an idea, thrashing it around, yeah. working really hard at it, 
figuring out what it is you want to do, getting it off the ground and making it real and getting people involved and getting people excited about it. You know, that's the stage that I think I really thrive and add a lot of value. As you start to scale up your organization, you have to really assess what value do you bring to that organization, what skill sets, and to my mind, were there other people who are better served to actually operate in that capacity? So there was a level of that. So there was a level of just self, self-reflection. Um, also, I felt, you know, as a company, as Naples growing, it was becoming less focused on technology and more focused on partnerships and relationship management. Because right, the tech was already kind of Yeah, solid. exactly. So the key challenges that were interesting to me just weren't there anymore. Um, and they just I didn't see there was much space for me on any any a, any other area of the business and then ultimately yeah massive burnout massive burnout you know we had really worked hard on this thing for five years I'd spent a year and a half living with my parents um, on no income we were working all day all night weekends um, and then you know on a more personal note um, my my father had cancer survived it my mother had cancer and didn't so uh, I made a, a decision that it was time for me to take a step away mm. and I spent um, about a year in the wilderness of uh, you know of London <laughs> it's not like I went anywhere <laughs> oh you didn't go anywhere no 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 um, <laughs> I think you're going to uh, go travel again no well to be fair I did do a little bit uh, I, um, I did a bit of sailing yeah uh, a friend of mine is a very good sailor so I spent a little bit of time with him and did a bit of a road trip over in the US. I think everyone does that at one point, so three weeks of um, driving around. And just gradually finding my feet and my energy again and trying to focus on what it was I wanted to do next. And that was a real tough decision. I was like, what do I want to do? Mm. You know, I've done this, I've done that, where do I go now? And what was interesting is I found myself at Neighbour very much speaking about the value of diversity, the value of inclusion, I was talking about the founder's journey, the the fact that I believe that technology is a real game changer in the space. Your laptop doesn't doesn't care about the colour of your skin, your um, sexual orientation or your gender. Um, anyone should be able to go to a company's house and set up a business. Mm. If you've got the technical skills, you can write some code, get it hosted on AWS, and you've got a business, you've got yeah. a company. Yeah. And then in five years' time, you can get it bought, right? So a lot of those glass ceilings were being shattered. Yeah, I'd be at these conferences and... This sounds really cliche, but it's absolutely true. I'd be saying all these things, and the only people, or the only, yeah, the only people in the room who I found looked like me or like you were serving drinks and canapes. Mm. And I started to get really uncomfortable with this. I was like, well, what's going on? Where are all the diverse and underrepresented founders? Um, and that, that was the point where, you know, the, the, the cogs started turning, and I started yeah. thinking, is there something I can do in the incubator space? But figured that's not going to work just yet because you know you need a lot of money to, to do that um, and I thought to myself so what, what can I do within my current capacities and constraints and um, actually what was happening was uh, my dad retired as a counsellor for Lewisham Council um, I was at the uh, their AGM where they announced they give out you know certificates of service and it was the uh, new mayor of Lewisham's inaugural AGM a guy called Damien and I got talking to him and his team about some of my thoughts around how you increase wealth creation in an area like Lewisham because it's interesting, they all, everyone talks about bringing wealth creation to these inner city deprived areas. Mm. And you know, they talk about we're gonna create jobs, we're gonna do this, I'm like, well, how? Not, yeah. With what? 
you know? And that's what not are you do? true wealth creation. Actually. No, it's not. Like a lot a of it's service industry. Yeah, exactly. And that money's going somewhere else, yeah, yeah. right? Getting a job in, in these spaces is great. It's great that you've got a job, but you're not generating wealth for the region. Mm. Um, and, you know, so we, we got into that conversation and I just started talking about startups and this and the other and what I'd been doing. And, you know, they, they were very interested in the, the ideas and the concepts and that whole conversation really morphed into um, what became Code Untapped. Yeah. And the whole idea initially, we were looking at training developers from under, underrepresented backgrounds and then sourcing them out to technology companies. But again, I feel there are a lot of training companies out there at the moment and we can get into the whole debate around code camps versus university another time, right? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> That's a whole, other whole other conversation. Yeah. But um, eventually we morphed into this idea of, look, for us it's all about the network. It's yeah. all about opening those doors. So yeah. what can we do to open the doors and bring these people through and give them a platform from which they can show what they can do, right? And that's where Code Untapped That's where Code Untapped came from. We figured, look, we've got the network. Yeah. We know all these different organizations. We've got the skills. Why don't we just start running these, these events whereby we can bring underrepresented technologists and give them a platform where they can show their voice in technology, right? So we run evening coding workshops and we've done some in React, um, Alexa skills, all sorts of other technology skill sets. And we run one day weekend um, product workshops or hackathons or startup bootcamp days. Yeah. And what's important is we then host those events with um, our partners who are organizations who are potential, have potential roles, so hiring managers in technology. So that gives our cohort the opportunity to showcase what they can do in front of hiring managers and it gives those organizations a chance to see a more diverse cohort of technologists and the chance to increase their profile within that space and potentially attract more people. Yeah. Because when you talk to companies, they always say about the lack of diversity. They go, well, you know, it's two problems. You're like, well, what's that? First one is pipeline. We're not getting any pipeline. Oh, uh, really? Okay. <laughs> right. Okay, fine. Yeah. So tell me about the pipeline. Tell me about the data. Tell me about your numbers. And they're like, well, you know, you know, mumbles. <laughs> like, it gets into a mumbling conversation. Like, who do you work for? Yeah, yeah, yeah all these exactly. And then inevitably, it's, oh, well, actually, it's our recruiters. They're the problem. Okay, cool. So what if we could find a way to increase that pipeline? And they go, yeah, okay, that's great. That's great. But then the other problem is we don't want to lower the bar. Right. That's, that's when you we don't want to lower the bar, and you're like, "Wow, that so is." You need to get start slapping people in the exactly. face. Exactly. I mean, because that's just you know, it's condescending, it's right? The most condescending. It, it's just ridiculous. Like, who said? Yeah. Who said you needed to lower the bar? Yeah. No, you don't. But tell you what, how about we increase the pipeline for you, and we give you an opportunity to see these people in action, right? Because I guarantee you, you hate your recruitment process as well, right? And you always complain that once you've got these people in the door, it turns out they can't do the job or you don't like them, yeah. right? So how about we give you a space whereby you actually get to see a more diverse group of people, you get to see them in action across the course of a day. Try before you buy. Exactly, and on top of that, your guys, your developers can come along as guest coaches and work alongside these people over the course of the day. Not only getting more exposure, but for a lot of them gaining potential mentorship or leadership skills that they don't get in their day-to-day -day job, right? That's Code Untapped, and to date we've run well over 11 events We've got over 500 people in our cohort. Yeah. We've placed at least five on the DOTS Fast Track 50 program with Google. So those individuals have now got mentors and connectors from the Google from, from Google itself. Awesome. 
Um, we've got, uh, we've worked with, uh, you know, next month we're running an event with uh, Department for Education. Yeah. We've done events with um, uh, CGI Solutions, which is an 80,000 person global IT consultancy. We've run events with Cancer Central, which is a charity trying to help uh, provide more resources for people suffering from cancer. Yeah. So we've run all sorts of events. Um, and that's really been our focus this year has been building a product building the cohort of individuals and developing a team. So we're a for-profit, but currently uh, we're not focusing on revenue generation. So all our coaches who work with us are all volunteers, yeah. doing out of the goodness of their hearts, an opportunity to pay it forward. Because mm -hmm. our big thing is, as I said, it's one thing to open the door, it's another thing to pull people through it. Yeah. Right? And that's really what we're focused on doing. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I remember when you were telling me about FedUntapped, I was like, yeah, this is, like I see how this ecosystem can work in terms of like, get people through the door, then it's now recruitment services, and then you can actually train people on how to get better, and it's just that- Those are the growth stages Yeah, to exactly, it, right? and that's what, that's what we lack more of. 100%. And that's what we need more of, rather. Well, the next stage that, for us, I mean, this is all part of the early stage of the plan, right? Yeah. This is about building a business that is able to, let me, let me go back a step. I often get asked, you know, this sounds like a social enterprise, sounds like a charity, why aren't you, a not-for-profit. My thing is, look, there are plenty of charities out there, yeah. and they do fantastic work. Yeah. But I want to build a scalable organization. I want to build one that can help more people tomorrow than it helped yesterday. Yeah. Right. And to do that, you need to be able to generate revenue. You need to be able to support yourself. You need to be able to grow. You need to have KPIs. Exactly. You need to be a gen yeah. you need to be a, a genuine company. And on top of that, what we're looking to do is build a stream of revenue so that we can empower an incubator for the business. Yeah. Taking the incredible diverse talent that comes through our door and helping them set up companies within our incubator space yeah. powered by the Code Untapped revenue machine. That's what we're looking to do. Yeah. And ultimately, I think, you know, you wouldn't tell another recruitment company <laughs> to become a charity. No. So why is it the fact that you have diverse talent yeah. And it's talent coming exactly. through the door. Why should why should that be hundred percent charity? You know? Exactly. You and I think also when it comes to anything around DNI, I think it's really important to for organizations to kind of shift their mindset. DNI is not a charity. No. Like we're basically saying there are a ton of great people exactly. who are being overlooked. And it's your responsibility to make sure that you are aware of that and you see that. And all we're trying to do is bring you this high level service. Hundred percent. And, and, and clearing your blind spots, which you should really be charging a premium for. And you should be paying a premium because no, <laughs> exactly. at the end of the day, you I'm know, helping you find the best people. Exactly. Right? Because so it's not a charity. This is no, a, a real business. It's a real problem. business. It's a real problem because everyone says, I want to hire the best people, but then you narrow your field of vision. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Dumb. And, you know, I, people ask me this and they say, well, do you think it's because of institutional racism? And I think, no, there, there is an element. Of I mean, that, there is of course. that. Yeah, we of course. That. Yeah. yeah, let's not deny that. But, but ultimately, hiring people is hard. Building teams is difficult. Yeah. So the first thing people do is they go, what does good look like? And they me. look in the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. They look in the mirror and they're like, They yes. look in the mirror and they go, well, me. And when I say me, they're not looking at their skin color or their height or whatever. What they're looking at is themselves as a professional mm. and going, what have I done? What jobs have I done? What roles have I done? What companies have I worked for? Yeah. What education have I had? Yeah. And the thing is, when you live within a homogeneous society such as ours, and people don't think it is, but the BAME, so black, Asian, minority, ethnic population in the UK, 
is only 14% of the yeah. population, right? In London and major cities, it's skewed significantly higher. Yeah. And so, even in the, within that vein, 3% are black. Exactly. And most of it's made up of Asians. Exactly, right? So in fact, if you ignore the concentrations within the cities and step out of the cities, there's probably less than one in 10 chance that you're gonna meet someone who's not white, mm -hmm. right? So we have a very homogeneous society outside of the cities. So chances are, if you're looking for someone who's had a very similar track record and background to yourself, guess what? They're probably gonna look like you as well. Yeah. Now that goes straight to the whole diversity challenge. And you know, people ask me, why do you think diversity inclusion is important? We can talk about social good and the rest of it as much as we like, but from a business perspective, Look, if you want innovation, you need people who can think outside the box. And when I say think outside the box, I mean who think differently to the people in the room currently, right? So you need people with different backgrounds, different schools of thought, different ways of looking at a problem. You can't think outside the box if everyone in the room has lived inside the box and it's the same box. So you need different types of people for innovation. But innovation without relevancy is a waste of time, mm -hmm. right? You need to build products that are relevant to your audience your audience is a society that you live within, right? Yeah. So your organization needs to reflect that. In FinTech, we often talk about financial inclusion. Are we gonna solve the problem of financial exclusion? But half your people have never been financially excluded. Yeah. So how do they know how to solve that Yo, problem, that's good. right? That's good. So innovation and relevancy. Next is access to talents. You want the best people, but you narrow your field of vision. Well, actually talent knows no borders, right? You need the widest field of vision as possible, but a way to filter out and get the best people from it. So you want the best people, you should be looking everywhere, not just people who look like you. So innovation, relevancy, access to talent, but finally it's retention. There's no point bringing these people in if when they get there, they don't feel welcome, mm -hmm. they don't feel included, they don't feel like they belong. They're not gonna stay, and that's when you lose diversity. People talk about the difference between diversity and inclusion. Diversity is a metric, it's a number, a statistic. Mm -hmm. Inclusion is a sense of belonging. Yeah. It's about being made to feel like you belong there, you're welcome there. And through creating belonging, diversity flourishes. Now, if you can show me a business where innovation, relevancy, access to talent and talent retention aren't important, well, I'd love to see it. Right? <laughs> love to see it. So right there, there's your business case. Yeah. when it comes to diversity and inclusion. I never set out to be, right? But you really are, because, and you're tackling, it, you're tackling it in the right way. You're looking at the pipeline problem from early on, mm -hmm. which is what Code, of, yep. Code on Tap addresses. Yep. And now you're looking at people further down the line and creating wealth mm -hmm. through venture capital and investing and empowering people from under, yep. underrepresented backgrounds and helping these businesses grow. Absolutely. So, you know, you are, you know, it's a different fight now. It is. You yeah, know, the I fights agree. have graduated every, you know, decade. Yeah. Every single decade, there's a new fight. It takes a new uh, look. It's a new mm -hmm. face. Um, and right now, we are fighting the lack of funding yeah. for black founders. Absolutely. I didn't. I've never articulated that way, but I like the way that sounds. Yeah. No, um, so, talk to me about Impact X. How did you get involved with Eric? 
Mm. Um, I know the vision for the fund. Yeah. Um, and and talk to me about your role right. in Impact X. Uh, so yeah, I won't I won't reflect on the vision of the fund because I think obviously no one can elucidate that better than Eric did. And he did on a two-hour <laughs> episode a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't heard it, go and listen because you know. Eric's one of the smartest guys I know. He, re- he really is. And, you know, his, his background, his experience is second to none. Um, so just the opportunity to work with Eric on this has, has made it all worthwhile. Um, and I, I try to only work with and for people I genuinely respect. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a dyed-in-the-wool entrepreneur. We are notoriously difficult people <laughs> to have working for you, yeah. as you know, Phil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> Um, as you know but at the same time people often joke yeah I'm, I'm not a good person to have working for you but that's not the right way to look for it <laughs> to look at it right because you know whilst I don't like being caged and told what to do and forced into process and the rest of it I spent over 20 years of my life doing martial arts and being beasted by my coaches and yeah. told what to do do this do that do that and getting on with it and you know at some point when you work you, you you need to listen to other people, mm-hmm. right? You need to take on board their lessons and their their life experiences and go, you know what? I actually respect what this person is saying to me. They've got the best outcome in their mind for me right now. Yeah. I need to shut up and get on with it, right? Yeah. And learn from this experience. But the point when that stops happening, that's when it's time to take a little step forwards. Mm. And I think that's where people struggle with very entrepreneurially minded people because it's weird, just segueing completely. Martial arts today, you know, you get people to a certain level and you expect them to stick around forever. Back in the day, you got people to a certain level of capability and you'd expect them to go off and find new masters. Yeah. And then they'd come back to your school in 10, 15 years and then they'd teach you and your students what they've learned. Mm. But in our day and age, we don't want people to do that because yeah. it's hard hiring them. We spend yeah. a lot of money getting them there. Yeah. Spend a lot of time training them. Yeah. Don't you dare leave. <laughs> right? yeah. But entrepreneurs at their heart want to try new challenges, right? And they want to have the opportunity to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest problem I think you find with a lot of organizations. Um, but how did I meet Eric? So I was busy trying to build Code Untapped. And this comes to the heart of my whole point about be out there and talk to people, tell people your story. Mm. And I was talking to everyone. Yeah. I was literally everyone I could speak to talking to them about Code Untapped. And through that, expanding my network and finding more people, talking to more people. Um, and I, I got invited to the Black Power List last year um, to a table. So I went along. It was a fantastic evening. Uh, that's an incredible organization. absolutely love what they're doing. Um, and uh, they have the after party afterwards. And I got speaking to this guy called Eric. Um, I'm like, oh, okay, hi, Eric. How are you? And we had a really good conversation about what I was doing with Code Untapped, a little bit about my background with yeah. um, Lehman and Credit Suisse and most importantly, um, Neighbor. And he said to me, well, you know, can we, can we grab a coffee? I'd really like to speak to you some more about all this. And I thought, yeah, brilliant, let's do that. And I had no idea that he was, who, was Eric? Who, who Eric was and yeah. what he was doing. I'm like, sure, you know, I'm always happy to go out for a coffee, meet people. I always try to do that, take that step, yeah. right, and meet people. You just never know what's going to come from a conversation. Yeah. And, um, we, yeah, we met up for a coffee a few weeks later, and, we're again, we're, we're having this conversation. He's asking me all these strange questions around my thoughts on CTOs versus CIOs versus VP of engineering, ver- in, in, 
insourcing versus outsourcing mm. and build versus buy. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, why is this guy asking all these crazy <laughs> questions about all this stuff? And I'm talking, talking, talking. And then we talk a little bit about Code Untapped as well. And then he starts telling me about Impact X. I'm like, oh, you're the Impact X guy. Because mm. someone had spoken to me a little bit about this and they said, look, you need to speak to Impact X. This is a new thing that's coming along. On, along. It's going to be amazing. I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm having this conversation with Eric. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. And he's telling me all about this vision for Impact X and supporting underrepresented people, uh, and in particular entrepreneurs of color as well, um, but across all different stripes, right? Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is kind of like the next step for where I want Code Untapped to be. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And then he turns around and says to me, look, as um, well, actually, he always calls me as H.E. He's like, as H.E., I, I really like what you're doing with Code Untapped, but I don't think it's for VC. I don't think it's for ImpactX. I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I had no intention. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, bro. Dude, I wasn't asking I, I, for I money. I wasn't asking for any money. I'm just talking to you about what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's right for us. But I'd really like to talk about you. And uh, would you be interested in joining us in, a, in some kind of capacity? Yeah. Um, and I'm like, and I had to think about it. And I'm like, well, in what way would you, would you like me to be more involved? Because um, obviously I have a financial background, but I'm not a financier, yeah, right? Yeah. And I've had significant experience with investors, but I've never been an investor. Mm. And uh, it's like, well, you know, we believe a lot of our pipeline is going to come from supporting tech companies, and there aren't enough VC funds that really understand technology. And I'd really want someone with your skill set, background, caliber to be part of that team to, to help us with that process. The initial conversation was around being a CTO in residence for the fund. And what was fascinating about that conversation is how far ahead Eric already was. Because mm. I don't know if you know, but Diversity VC released their piece of research yeah, earlier yeah, yeah. on this year um, about the state of diversity in venture capital. And one of the shocking statistics was that 8% of UK VCs have startup Operation. operational experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we, we spoke about that. Yeah, yeah. 8%. <laughs> yeah, it's a joke. 4% have technology experience. Joke. And yet these are the companies who are investing in the technology companies of the future. Insane. It's absolutely crazy. And it's like less than 1% of that money goes to black founders. Absolutely. Less right. than 2% of VCs are black. Like there's, Absolutely. It's horrible. So shout out to Diversity VC and check on everything that they're doing. Um, and I think the most shocking statistic was the number one prerequisite to become a VC in Silicon Valley was that your dad was a VC, Yep. right? And all these things are just absolutely ridiculous. So at ImpactX, we're the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, yeah. right? You know, um, so Eric was really keen to get me to join as a technologist. And I thought about it, obviously I'm trying to build code untapped. And do I wanna take time to do this as well? Mm. And I had a real think back in my back uh, to my early days at Lehman when I was working with my friend on my the protein shake concept, and he actually ran one of the sales desks for Lehman Brothers, and he offered me the opportunity to join his sales team at the time. So I've always had that kind of. I'm not a salesman, but I've always had that salesy slant. So mm -hmm. I've been interested in the business and the financing side. I didn't take the opportunity, and these chances don't come up very often. And the chance to join a VC without that kind of prerequisite. Um, private equity or banking yeah. um, financing background or the consulting background do not come, especially if you look like me, yeah, right? No, 100%. Just do not come along. So I thought about it, thought about it, and I said to myself, look, both of these things support each other. 
exactly as you said, Phil, Code Untapped is all about pipeline. It's all about talent. It's all about nurturing those individuals. Impact X is all about that follow on and supporting them mm. as they grow. And I figured, can I do both of these things? Can I be involved in both at the same time? So that then morphed to me coming on as a principal and founding member of the fund. Uh, so now, yeah, I'm a, I'm a full founding member of Impact X Capital along with 20 other founding members. I'm principal alongside Yvonne, working along, uh, working with Eric and Paula and Erica yeah. to source deals, analyze companies, and really kind of get to know the, the founders from a technology perspective as well, mm. as well as a startup perspective, having been there and done that, Absolutely. see what I think of them and their ideas and their concepts. And also we provide a lot of support. So a lot of our conversations start off from a, I need money perspective, mm -hmm. but then actually turn into, well, maybe VC is not the right kind of money for yeah. you, yeah. or maybe we're not the right organization for you right now, but what support can we give you to help you get to that position? Is it introductions to other angel investors that we know, mm -hmm. or is it introductions to our network, or is it introductions to advisors? I've personally connected a number of our startups with advisors who are friends of mine and colleagues and people I know through my journey who have been able to give them significant value add and support. And I've, well, there's been at least one particular um, success story in that, um, which I've been really, really happy about. And so for us, it's all about that, that whole ecosystem yeah. that we're building. It's not just about money. We're not just another VC who's coming along and saying, yeah, we can provide all this value add. And you actually don't. You just actually cause problems. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so seriously. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tell you stories. But that's, that's really when Eric came to me and said those things, I thought to myself, you know what? I've got to do this. And it's been absolutely amazing. It's been hard work. But what I've really found fascinating is how Code Untapped conversations turn into Impact X conversations, yeah, absolutely. So and Impact X conversations turn into Code Untapped conversations. So yeah, really about building that ecosystem. I'm just waiting to see, you know, in five, ten years' time when we see, I went to Code Untapped, yeah, and then I went to work here, and then I reached back out to Zechi and I started this other thing, and now you know our first 10 employees came from code untapped like you know <laughs> i just day. can't wait for One that day. whole story to come out because that's going to be testament to the things that you're doing well it's when you know we start hearing about global technology companies who started in the code untapped yeah. incubator who yeah. came through the code untapped program who were then yeah. funded by impact x that's the that's when we know we're seeing real impact and that's the day i can't wait for yeah no it, it sounds as though you're trying to create some i guess you know, we're in Founders Factory right now. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. you want to create the Founders Factory, the Founders Factory for, you know, underrepresented I, I, people. You know what? I, I think that's very much what we are doing. Yeah. Um, and I think there's space for so many of these different organizations Absolutely. because there's so much support that's yeah. needed. One of a statement that, you know, and I use it a lot, I, you know, I borrow statements from all sorts of people, but I've got to give credit to Yvonne, so my, my uh, co-principal Yvonne Bajella for this one, which is that, Ability is evenly distributed, but opportunity isn't, mm. right? It's a good t-shirt saying again. That's another one, man. I've got all of them. <laughs> I, I can be reeling them good. off all day long. I'm going to have to take that one. <laughs> you don't have to do anything of it. Yeah, exactly. Good. We, we, we should just do a line in meaningful that's sayings good, and t-shirts. And that's really what Code Untapped, sorry, not Code Untapped, but Impact X is all about, right? And once we start seeing more and more companies growing, 
from people who had the ability but just not the opportunity. That's when we know we've really, we've really done what we set out to do. Yeah, I know the vision on Impact Tech, so I know, mm. uh, you know Eric alluded to that earlier, but I guess for you, what kind of companies are you looking for? Because like you said, you're more kind of like the deal sourcing team. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you're one of the gatekeepers before you get to meet the Mr. Eric, Mr. Eric Collins. Uh, so yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> what, can, what do you want to see or when is the right time for people to kind of reach out to you? Yeah. Um, and are there any kind of particular products or industries or services that you're really interested yeah. in seeing at the moment? Well, I mean, as a fund, as I'm sure Eric alluded to, we, we've got three key verticals, which is the, the creative and entertainment I- industry, um, particularly with uh, straight streaming creative products or creative technology style platforms. There's the health and lifestyle space. So this is an area where entrepreneurs of color typically gravitate to, whether it's um, e- um, media products, whether it's, sorry, whether it's... Um, uh, health and wellness, beauty. Health and wellness, beauty, makeup, skincare, hair care, uh, fashion. So there, there's, a, there's a strong focus on that. Is and that only, only from a, a technical perspective? Like a tech no, I'd say it's a product product perspective product as well. But it's a, that's a difficult one to support from a venture capital perspective. Yeah. And that's part 10, of the challenge. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of challenges there from brand, marketing, um, product scale. development, scale. And, and even for those that are on that journey, even right at the beginning, minimum purchase orders, all sorts of things, you've got to purchase the inventory. So inventory risk becomes a problem. So it's an area we really want to support, but it's a difficult one. Mm-hmm. I'd say the most natural fit for me is obviously technology and digital pipeline. And what I think has been absolutely astonishing for me, um, and I say astonishing in a good way, but also in a bad way, because it really does upset me how little focus in the UK in particular, in the UK press, technologists get, mm. particularly in the startup world. I felt, I, I saw this myself, right? Um, where the technologists behind, the, the people behind the technology come second to the people who came up with an idea, mm-hmm. right? So you see the CEOs, the, the, the yeah. CFOs, the yeah. COOs getting a lot of focus and the technologists get nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And what I've been so impressed by is the quality of the technical founders who we've met so far. And these are guys in guys and girls, sorry, either in drone technology, machine learning, um, medical science technology, um, diagnostics tooling, uh, data science, and uh, uh, virtual reality, uh, robotics. So just every type of technology, satellite power satellite systems technology as well every type of tech you can imagine we're seeing founders of color in that space mm. right and strong technologists um so that's just a bit, a bit of a segue but in answer to your question what kind of organizations do we look for i think ultimately what we're looking for are companies where we can believe in the founding team not because of their education but because of who they are what they can do and uh, the, the A to a degree what they've done, but also the um, what, what, what we see them capable of doing, mm. right? 
the promise in them. But then in terms of the products, it's really, is this a, how far have they got along their journey of building the product, right? Is this a product that is likely to scale? And is it gonna scale globally, yeah? Because we're still a venture capital fund. We still need to generate returns. Yeah. Is it something that we feel we can provide value add to, right? Because there are so many different VCs out there. Part of the reason why we get around the table and we get included is because of what we can do, not just the mission mm. that we have behind us. So I'd say my sweet spot definitely on the tech side, where it's fintech, insure tech, um, legal technology. Uh, if, you, if you've got any strength in that space, you're naturally gonna get an audience with me, right? There's an invitation, guys. So primarily seed and series A, but we do look at some pre-seed as well because we think that's important because a lot of our key demographic are focused on that area because part of the challenge for people is the friends and family round. Is, there's the friends and family round as, as to I alluded before they can't get that far yeah. you know say well go ahead and raise a hundred thousand pounds in friends and family well good luck right if you're a young lad from Stratford that might not be that easy mm. however or Lewisham, or Lewisham <laughs> right well I mean uh, Lewisham these days maybe you might maybe have that. <laughs> maybe you're seeing changes yeah but that's not so easy however Pre-seed is the riskiest form of investment. Of course. Right? 60% of deals, 60% of companies don't go on to raise their next round. Mm -hmm. Right? That doesn't mean they will fail, but there's a high percentage chance that they do. So, and also the ticket sizes are a lot smaller at pre-seed. Yeah. You know, if you're building a 100 million pound VC fund, there's only so many 50 to 100,000 pound checks you can write yeah. um, within that time period. Yeah. So it's a difficult one for us. It's one that we want to support and we have done some pre-seed uh, and we're always interested in pre-seed companies but you really do have to come in with an outstanding story because it's so hard for us to be able to do what we need to do at that level. We're primarily focused on those companies who have managed to get a standing start going, getting a little bit of pace but are now struggling to find other VCs to come around the table. Mm. So we're there to say, look, no, we can help you take that next step. But obviously, yes, we do still have to look for certain metrics. And the thing is, is that I've heard, heard the question once, what's the difference between different VCs? You know, they all look at the numbers, they all look at potential for growth, they all look at, some might have a particular interest in biotech or deep, yeah. deep tech or yeah. whatever, right? But ultimately what it comes down is to network. Mm -hmm. Who knows them and who do they know? Our big thing is, we are looking for a very specific group of individuals and we are trying to open the doors to them. And I think someone said the statement to me, the difference between you and them is you don't say no because. That's the big difference. We're not gonna say no to you because you're an entrepreneur of color, right? In fact, that's part of the reason why we're gonna, you're in the room yeah, in the with room us, purpose, yeah. right? But we will still look at the metrics. You're not gonna get investment from us just because you're a person of color. Mm -hmm. We are still trying to build real businesses that can scale, that can grow, that can generate revenue and yeah. build returns, right? Yeah. So it's it's a very broad question. It's quite a meandering answer. And I, yeah. <laughs> I hope I've given you some level of closure to the question. No, you have for sure, for sure. There's actually one I work towards wrapping up now. Uh, I have 
a set of questions I ask all people that come all on the right. show. Okay. Rapid fire answers. Okay, I'll try my best. As you can imagine, when I'd done this with Eric, they were not rapid fire. <laughs> I'll try my best. Long. Uh, but they were good still. Shout out to Eric. Yeah, um, absolutely. Okay, so like what it. has or who has been your biggest inspiration? My mum and dad. They're the ones who pushed me to make sure I went to university in the first place. And if it weren't for them, given where I grew up, given the school I went to, I don't think I'd have succeeded. Uh, favorite podcast? Favorite podcast? Well, now it's Phil's show, right? No, Startup yeah. hand-me-down. <laughs> but I think before that, probably, um, it's, no, it's tried, it's, it's a cliched answer, but 20 Minute VC is, is oh, like really Harry? good. It's a really good show. You listen to it and you learn so much just yeah. from listening to that show. Yeah, and good. I'll give a shout out to Reggie Yates' show as well. Have you listened to that? Yeah, my, my, my girlfriend loves listening to it, so we've always got it on in the background. That's good. Um, I haven't actually checked it out, though. I'll, I'll, I'll no, it out. it's worth listening to. Uh, Favourite blog? Uh, honestly, I don't have one. I don't spend that much time. I, I'd say I read across different materials, different people, different okay. organisations, so I don't really have an answer to that question. Okay, favourite book? I would say... Um, Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson. Uh, favorite Instagram account? Honestly, I don't spend that much time Twitter, on Instagram. Twitter, Twitter um, UK Black Tech. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> They've always got interesting yeah, things. Yeah, that's so. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to David McQueen, right? Absolutely. Yeah, shout out to David. Uh, got to get him on the show soon, actually. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Give more quality time to my friends, I'd say. I'm so busy. I'm trying to do so many different things. Spending time with my friends and family is probably the area where I fail the most. And one of the lessons I've learned is for everything that you're doing, all the good that you're doing in the world, your friends and family are still the people who are always going to be there for you. Yeah. So you need to be able to give some back to them because they're the ones who are going to support you when you're down. Yeah, that's really, really true. Um, the advice you would give to your 21-year-old self? Honestly, the advice I'd give to the 21-year-old self is just keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, you're going to make it in the end. You're going to get there. Life is always a challenge, but you know, don't you know, keep backing yourself. And I'd say know your value, mm. right? Remember that. Always know your value. And if you don't know what it is, go and find out what it is. If you had $100 or £100 mm. in your favorite city, what do you spend it on? Probably beer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting into beer a lot lately. I like actually. to go out and have a drink. I like to enjoy myself. What's the one thing, I know you mentioned this earlier, but maybe it's a different answer, but what's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Wow, that is a really hard question to answer. Doubters. When I say ignore, what I mean is listen to them, but don't let their doubts and their fears override your ability in yourself. Mm. Right? Everyone comes at, comes at a problem from a different angle with different experience. Theirs might not marry with yours, but some of the lessons they've learned along the way may well be relevant. Mm. So don't allow other people's fears to stop you from what you need to do, but do pay attention to the lessons they've learned. Yeah, that's good. And finally, what's your vision? I guess this, is, this might have two answers. Mm. Because what's your vision, I guess, your vision for Neighbour? Because obviously I know you've left there, but obviously you're still a co-founder, so you still have still a goal. cheerlead. You're still, cheerlead. still yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what's your vision for the company? And what's your vision for the company? For my vision for for Neighbor is for it to become an established name, mm. right? Known as a company 
that helps employees gain fairer access to finance and reduce their debt burdens, right? It's, of course, you know, I'd love to see it become X million in valuation and, you know, do all the other great things that startups are supposed to do. But Nabel is fundamentally set, set up with a social mission in mind, and I want to see it fulfill that mission. Mm. That's what I want to see. In regards to Impact X, I want to see I want to see companies coming through. I want to see them growing. I want to see them exiting. I want us to be a powerhouse in that space. I want Impact X to be the fund that not just underrepresented founders come to, but other founders come to. Maybe they get turned away, but <laughs> they, but they but, come. That's the but they thing. come, right? They, try, they give it a shot. I want us to be you know right at the forefront of creating and building, well, of developing that industry, and I want us to be a leader in that space, I think that's important. It's not enough for us to be good enough to be in the engine room, right? We need to be in the captain's chair as well. Mm. I firmly, firmly believe this. Yeah, that's good. Zachi, Ez, yep. thanks so much for coming on the show. Phil, it's been a pleasure. Uh, if people want to find you, if you'd like to be found, uh, yeah, where can absolutely. they find you? Well, you can find me uh, most easily probably through LinkedIn. Yeah, um, I'm very easy to find. Just type in SHE Britain or Neighbor, or Impact X Capital, yeah. or Code Untapped, you will find me, yeah. right? If you want to find out a bit more about Code Untapped, join our meetup group. So we've got Code Untapped meetup, and uh, come to one of our events. And that's the easiest way to meet me in person. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thank you for your time. Just want to say another massive thank you to Ezechi for coming on the show and sharing his story with us. And again, another massive thank you to founders factory and more specifically winnie who keeps hooking us up with the space thank you so much winnie we appreciate you so that's it guys as always thank you so much for tuning in and if you haven't already please subscribe and leave us a review they honestly do go a long way okay until next time keep grinding